This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, week 61, working from home. We were both in the office this week. And Tim, it was a week full of a lot of economic data, volatile markets. We saw global stocks slide on inflation concerns. Yeah, we did a busy week here at Bloomberg headquarters. Lots of our colleagues returned into the office for the first time in over a year. So it's good to see that things are slowly getting back to normal. I talk about this all the time more and more traffic. Yeah, and a lot more traffic on the roads and in the elevators. Coming up on Bloomberg Business Week, we've got a jam-packed show. We've got live person CEO Rob Lacazio on the proliferation of artificial intelligence. Also, an inside look at the volatile nature of the multi-billion dollar video game industry. And we've got a music legend joining us as well, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Nancy Wilson on self-discovery with live music. She is putting out her first solo album ever. And you guys talk a little bit about the late, great Eddie Van Halen as well. Just some great stories. Well, all that to come. We're going to begin this week with the cover story in Bloomberg Business Week. The SPAC boom has sputtered thanks to SEC warnings and some disappointing performances. One guiding voice amid it all, the former immigrant kid who is now worth billions, the so-called Pied Piper of the recent blank check craze. We're talking about venture capitalist Chamath Paliapatiya. Bloomberg Projects and Investigations reporter Zeke Fox explores how Palihapitiya shaped the media and Wall Street narratives around Clover. It's a middling health insurer in New Jersey that he reframed as a disruptive and game-changing profit machine. We are also joined by Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. So the pitch for Clover Health is that it was a tech company that was going to revolutionize healthcare. And if you weren't listening that closely, you might not even really pick up that it was uh, really a health insurance company. And of course, you can find this all out from its securities filings if you're the kind of person who reads those. But really, it's a Medicare Advantage plan that almost exclusively operates in New Jersey. Not really a very big company. And from talking to former employees, one that's uh, had a lot of trouble hitting its growth targets in the past, expanding the way it wanted to. Now, of course, they have this pitch now that they've invented a tech tool that's sort of the culmination of you know, a decade of their existence that's really going to bring together all their machine learning technology to analyze patient data and recommend treatments, and that this is what's really going to make the company take off. Um, but I hope that the investors that are buying it understand that, you know, this is a pretty risky new business rather than something that is, you know, guaranteed to go up. Right. And you say decade in business still losing money, uh, so that if it was being taken public, you know, and it was going on a road show, you would certainly see Zeke, it become under a lot of scrutiny. Yeah, that's sort of the appeal of SPACs for a lot of companies, is when you go public, the underwriters are worried about getting sued if they make projections that are wrong. So you're almost forced to dwell on your recent results. So if you're a company like Clover that's losing huge amounts of money every year, but you're on the verge of a turnaround, you say, um, when you do a SPAC, you can talk more about your great future prospects and you can hopefully investors won't dwell on your recent losses. And there's been just like a huge wave of these unprofitable uh, companies with big dreams 
going public through SPACs this year. And for a while, it just seemed like all of them went up. I mean, almost, people were talking about it like it was almost a new asset class. You could just invest in SPACs and get great returns. Well, and then um, gravity kind of came in and, and <laughs> things have changed a little bit um, and hence the, the SPACs go splat cover. Um, Zeke, though, I wanted to ask because despite what, what we'll publish in the magazine and um, despite maybe that data, it doesn't seem like it might um, stop Chamath, right? And even as you were working on this story, he announced that there was another one coming um, with a certain gym chain. Uh, so how do you how do you make sense of uh, of of where Chamath could go with his vision of, of SPACs? So he has turned himself into kind of a brand name like Goldman Sachs. And if you're a company that wants to go public, maybe you hire a bank to do an IPO. And now people are aware that there's another option that you could merge with one of Polyhopatia's SPACs. And my big question is whether the brand name can survive one or two bad deals. Um, if it was, it was built on just sort of this to the moon idea, um, is he going to lose his appeal if he has a mixed track record, uh, like anyone who's bringing companies public is likely to have in the long run. You can't all be winners. Um, but you're right. He's just the other day. Bloomberg News broke that he is planning to bring the gym chain Equinox public. Um, but we'll, he hasn't raised any new blank check companies for a while. So that's something to keep an eye on if he's uh, raises more and gets closer to his goal of. 26, like he said. That was Bloomberg's Zeke Fox on the king of SPACs, Chamath Polyhapatia. But I think to his followers, he's more of like a one name person, Chamath. People tweet it, you know who they're talking about. <laughs> kind of like Madonna, kind of yeah, like that's Beyonce. What he is now. <laughs> he's definitely within that world. And listen, I think for SPACs, uh, the history books will see how they cover this era because SPACs, not a new thing, but man, we've had quite a boom in the past year. Yeah, we really have. Uh, the big question is how sustainable is it? Because it, the last few months haven't seen that similar boom. Right. We're not seeing it in the returns either. Coming up, the changing face of consumer interactions. That is, they have no face at all. Live person CEO Rob Lacasio on earnings and the booming market for conversational artificial intelligence software. It's about bots. It's when we go on a website, Tim, and we get to actually kind of talk with somebody. I feel like I'm talking with a person. Yeah, it's working. It is working. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Tim, the next couple of segments, we're going to take a look at consumers and shopping because we've seen a lot of changes, increasingly everybody going digital in the last 12, 13 months because of the pandemic. And I guess some of the questions are what happens in a post-pandemic world? And this one, next guest kind of gives us some clues. Uh, yeah, it's Rob Lacasio, the founder, chairman and CEO of the publicly held application software company. It's called Live Person. He joined us after his company reported a strong first quarter. He's someone we've talked to, though, throughout the pandemic. Keep in mind, Live person, it's an AI powered conversational platform for consumers to essentially talk with companies, engage with companies. And Locasio says there's a good chance you've interacted with his platform, whether you know it or not. We're talking about bots. So much demand for um, you know AI and conversational AI and bots and messaging. Right. You know, consumers, we want to do things differently. And so we had like 
you know, Dunkin' Donuts now is using it for uh, their consumers to sign up for their loyalty programs. And there's, we got a big jewelry company, one of the public companies, they're selling diamond jewelry with it. So I'm like, Donuts to Diamonds? It's kind of like <laughs> it's moving beyond care right now. That's pretty and, funny. Uh, we just saw a 38% growth in the quarter. That's our highest uh, growth quarter in the history of our company. So, so for people who aren't familiar with the actual technology, explain where they might have interacted with it. You mentioned a couple companies there. Uh, and, and what exactly they're doing when they're communicating. And, and do they know that they're not necessarily communicating with a real person? Yeah, so like if, if you've ever been on Delta Airlines or T-Mobile or Citibank, you'll be basically, if you've messaged into using Apple Business Chat or, or SMS or even in their app, if you're messaging with them, like you do your friends and family, you're using our technology. So sometimes it's not a live agent and we provide an automated, what we call a bot or Chipotle. The, you can order a burrito now with a bot called Pepper and pick that burrito up uh, at the store. So that's where you would have touched it. And we have 18,000 customers all around the world. So uh, we do about 80 million people a month will be interacting on our system with one of our 18,000 customers. Wow. So what's changed? I mean, you have a great, you know, first of all, Rob, we've talked to you a couple of times throughout the pandemic, and it's been great checking in with you because you do have a great vantage point. You work with a lot of different companies, different industries. From that vantage point, we were just talking about CEOs are not giving a lot of um, forecasts longer term. So we're not quite sure what happens after maybe the pop in the second quarter. And after that, what would you say about the economy today and maybe out through the end of the year? I mean, we're seeing, I, I, like we have uh, a lot of travel hospitality uh, customers and some of the biggest brands in the world from hotels to, um, you know, airlines and man, like they, 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 they reduced their staff in some cases down to like nothing. And now they've had to overhire for the amount of demand we're seeing their retail online retail. We have some of the biggest home building companies, uh, in, in the world. Uh, we're seeing a lot of action there, home improvement companies, a lot of action there. So I, I think there are, are, are we're seeing basically across our customer base a lot of movement. So it feels like things are bouncing back now in our mm. world. A lot just shifted to digital. So I think those brands that are really being digitally forward and aggressive and really changing how they were doing business during COVID are going to sort of they're going to they're going to really uh, get the real bang out of as we come through this thing. So what does that look like on the other side in terms of how people interact with other people versus how they're interacting with bots? What do companies that are reopening or that have reopened need to be prepared for the different way that consumers want to communicate? What do you see? I think it's really like the retail. It's been really interesting in retail. Like obviously the retail physical locations got shut down. Now they're opening back up. But we're seeing such demand still in digital using messaging, allowing the consumer to have that personal experience. And that's what we need. Like, we like to have conversations as people uh, because it's how our brain works. We want to ask questions about products, and we need that. So being able to provide that, especially in the retail area, I don't think it's about going back to stores 100%. It's about, yes, the stores will be there. But I, I can tell you, these the retailers we're working with, like the, this big jewelry company, like they have 3,000 stores in the U.S. The amount of money they've, they've created an opportunity digitally now where they didn't think they could sell like this, sell a diamond necklace or right. a diamond ring and they're able to do it, that's what they're really starting to see is that, oh yeah, we should have done this a long time ago, 
this is our future. We don't have to just rely on people walking in our stores. You and I talked about this, I think, before. It was uh, somebody during the pandemic that we talked with. It was kind of high-end watches, and they were mm. doing virtual meetings with consumers to show them stuff, you know, <laughs> and shop that way. And personally, these converse, conversational bots, I kind of enjoy it. It engages me, and I feel like I actually have some personal experience, Rob. Yeah, and, and that's that's what it is. Like, the, the version one of the bots a couple of years ago were pretty bad, but our platform... <laughs> And what we're able to do with it, and it's just the way we built the platform and the way we have the data and the way uh, uh, our customers can build their bots. Like Pepper, this this bot for Chipotle, it's it's like you basically, you talk to it and you have this relationship and you build a burrito and, and it's cool. It's like, it's not just like, give us your burrito order, press one, press two. You like, you converse with this. Like there's a personality? That, and that's personality. And that's the cool thing is that the w websites are all sort of the same when you think about them. Top navigation, a bunch of text and pictures. Every brand now can create a different type of, think about it, like it's almost like they put a live human, they, it, it's automated, but they create a personality for it. That was Rob Lacasio, founder, chairman, and CEO of Live Person. Listen, I think about you know what I have done over the last 12, 13 months, and when I go online, it's not just about looking at a website, picking things, yeah. and just filling out the order form, essentially. There are times I have questions. I did it with a paint company, and I started talking with somebody. I, I did it with framing somebody. I actually had an ongoing conversation, and I have to say, as a consumer, I really like it, because I get my questions answered right away. And I do think it's something that has become, as, as the technology has gotten better, it's become increasingly acceptable to consumers, because there is that fine line between what actually works and right. what makes a consumer more frustrated if they can't get the answer to what they're looking for. And I have to say, every once in a while, though, there's a bot that it's like, you can tell it's like standard questions. You're like, no, that's, that's not what I want. <laughs> that's not what I'm asking. All right. Still ahead on Bloomberg Business Week: ruin and recovery in the video game industry. Bloomberg's Jason Schreier on his book, Press Reset, all about how a series of renowned studios fell apart. This is someone who knows the video game industry inside and out. It's a second book on the industry. Yeah. And it is a fantastic read. Also up next, the shop from home boom is here to stay. But now people are buying clothing and accessories for going out. Retail veteran Julie Bornstein on consumer spending patterns and the one year anniversary of her shopping app, The Yes. Are you shopping more? I am shopping a little more. A little differently? Yeah, I mean, I don't shop much in general. <laughs> okay, okay. Can I talk to your wife? Yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's coming up. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. We mentioned we had a couple of interviews when it comes to consumer spending. This is our second one, and this next guest has a front row seat when it comes to consumer spending at retail. We're talking about Julie Bornstein. She's founder and CEO of the shopping app, The Yes, which she launched him one year ago. Talk about timing, May of 2020. Yeah, and she knows a thing or two about retail. She's a former chief operating officer of Stitch Fix, former chief digital officer at Sephora, executive responsibilities at Urban Outfitters and Nordstrom as well. And now she's steering a company that she launched during the pandemic toward a more normalized retail climate. So here's what people are spending their money on when it comes to fashion. We definitely are starting to see sort of a turn in pattern. Um, 
I would say in the beginning of our launch last May, which was a crazy time to try and launch a fashion <laughs> business, we were primarily selling casual clothes. Um, Zoom tops was a big category and leggings and comfortable clothing. Um, and it was interesting because we definitely saw with the world really focusing on online shopping an appetite for consumers to try out new apps. You know, I think as everyone started doing grocery shopping on Instacart and other ways of sort of going through life, we saw a lot of people downloading our app called the Yes. And, um, you know, I would say both playing around and uh, sort of thinking about what they want to buy in the future and then buying pretty practical clothes. Um, but we started to see um, some light at the end of the tunnel of the COVID um, pandemic in the thought that people are starting to buy for going out. So we're seeing some occasion categories like dresses and heels um, and some other interesting trends. How much are they buying and how much do you think has also been impacted as a result of the stimulus payments? How much has that given kind of maybe a boost to some of the business uh, at the Yes? The Yes sells primarily branded, um, you know, mid to higher price right. points. So we're probably a little less sensitive to the checks. But I think just the, I mean, I think a combination of the stimulus checks and the fact that sort of consumer confidence is growing and people just are starting to think about going out again is very evident in we're seeing an increase in total sales and obviously a change of what people are buying. Well, it's, and so how has kind of what you've seen, Julie, in maybe the last few months maybe changed your thoughts and thinking about the rest of the year? Um, you know, I think that the it's hard to predict how things will come back um, and I, I think it's going to be um, a slow, steady return, um, especially in fashion. If you kind of look at historical trends, you know, it takes a little while for things to come back. And it also, um, I think there's sort of this combination of you have sort of this money that you haven't spent in this category. Um, so you're excited to spend it. And on the flip side, you haven't worn anything in your closet <laughs> for the past year. Um, and so, you know, I think, and then the things that you have bought, you kind of want to burn because you've been wearing, but you have gotten used to wearing comfortable things. So I think there are a number of interesting dynamics at play, and we're seeing a little bit all of it play out. Um, certainly in terms of some of the, you know, if you look at the product categories that the fashion um, brands are making, mm -hmm. they've added a lot of casual into their line, and it seems as though they will keep that while also we'll start to see the return of more, you know, sort of clothing to go out in for occasions and ultimately for work, which I think will come back even later because return to office won't happen more at scale until the fall. Right. I mean, I'm wearing heels, to be fair. I'm getting dressed Good up. for you. <laughs> so like <laughs> you do get back and that's from, you know, yoga pants and jeans and bare feet yeah. at home for eight, nine months. Um, are, is there anything, you know, you were just talking about kind of how people are adapting some of their lines to include some of that, you know, casual wear, but is there anything from the pandemic in terms of how we shopped or how we looked at the stuff we owned, how that stays with us post pandemic? Yeah. I mean, I think Two of the um, sort of trends that I think will stick is, you know, we saw a step function change in the m amount of purchasing online. And so, you know, there have been sort of, there's been a steady growth in online purchasing. I've been in online retail for 20 years. 
and you know you've seen a very steady rise. Um, but I think we saw a step change function this year that will continue, um, meaning that we've increased the trend and now we will sort of continue to grow off of that new trend. That was Julie Bornstein, founder and CEO of the shopping app, The Yes. She was former chief operating officer of Stitch Fix, former chief digital officer at Sephora, worked at Urban Outfitters, Nordstrom, you know, someone who really you know, has worked in retail for a long time, seen the ups and downs and understands kind of the evolution in how we're shopping. Throughout the pandemic, we've been hearing from executives and and talking about Mm -hmm. this a lot, the acceleration of trends. Pretty amazing, Carol, to see a company get five years worth of shopping trends compressed into one. That stat really stood out for me. It just is a reminder of how much happened in the last year and and the impact it's going to have on all of us going forward. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up next, the rise and fall of some gaming heavyweights. We're talking about video games. Yeah, the dark side of the video game industry. We're bringing it to light. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. You might recall this cover story, Bloomberg Business Week, from the summer. It was about the dark underbelly of a business built on fun. Tim, this is a story about the video game industry. Bloomberg News technology writer Jason Schreier joined us again, this time around talking about his new book, an excerpt of which was just in the magazine. I could not put this story down when I started reading it, Carol. I'm not a gamer, and the mark to me of, of good writing is bringing someone in who has no experience in something, and that's how I feel about gaming. I just could not stop reading this. I was enthralled. Well, this is his second book on the industry, and he really brought it down to the people in the industry and how the ups and downs can really impact them personally. The book is called Press Reset, Ruin and Recovery in the Video Game Industry, and an unforgiving one, despite the hundreds of millions of dollars that it generates. So with my first book, I kind of broke down the question of why are games so hard to make? And I kind of answered that through a bunch of case studies, exploring different games and, and telling their stories. With this book, I wanted to tell more of a human story, tell the story of people in the video game industry and the the hardships that they sometimes go through and what that means for them, what it does to them, um, what kind of, how it feels, how they recover afterwards. And through that, I explored the question of why is this games industry, which is making so much money, it made $180 billion last year. Why is it it, it so unstable for its workers? Why are workers, why do they have such a hard time keeping their jobs in this industry. You're right. It's about heartbreak and tragedy. It's also about recovery. I mean, there are several instances in the book where you talk about, you know, people who have worked together, as you say, pulled all-nighters, you know, working on games, you know, hitting deadlines and so on and so forth, only to come in and just find out that they don't have a job and they're not going to see these people anymore. Yeah, and it's not only that their games failed or that the, the, the company is in business trouble. Sometimes it's a successful game, as in the case of Irrational Games, which is one of the companies that mm-hmm. I cover in the book. They made a game called Bioshock, which is very popular, critically acclaimed. About a year after their most recent game, Bioshock Infinite, the studio, everybody came in to find that the studio was shutting down. And yeah, it can be really brutal. One of the worst parts, I think, and I talk about this quite a, book, a, a, quite a bit in Press Reset, is that... Um, you are kind of stuck wherever you are, and you might have to move thousands of miles away to get a new job. In Irrational's case, they were in Boston, and there are not a lot of other video game companies in Boston. So a lot of the people who wanted to stay and keep working in games had to move across the country, uproot their whole families, and it can be really just burn people out. It's, it, it feels unsustainable to me. 
I feel like it's a company that goes bankrupt, right? And then all of a sudden everybody's in there, the vultures, like, I want the desks, I want this. But I mean, you talk about when a company goes down, one of these video game uh, company goes down, then all of a sudden recruiters fly in, right? To kind of take the workers. So they are in demand. But as you said, they often have to be uprooted and move their families maybe across the country. Yeah, it's funny. I saw a stat just the other day that was essentially, it was a list of job postings for the video game industry. And there were like a couple hundred jobs here and there for junior level people. And then it was like thousands of senior level like job listings for senior level uh, positions. And the reason that is, is because the games industry has this dearth of people who have five, 10 years of experience because so many of them burn out. So yes, these recruiters are, are seizing in and, and hoping to get some of that talent, some of that experience. But a lot of those people might not want to move. I mean, in a rational case, a lot of the people who are in Boston, um, maybe if they're in their 20s, they can move across the country and get new jobs. They're kind of free. But if they're in their 30s, they have families. They don't want to pull their kids out of school. So a lot of them just left the industry entirely, went to, to, to other tech companies in the area, um, finance companies, banks, stuff like that. And that we are seeing uh, uh way too much in this industry. Well, we all got a tease of your book thanks to Business Week magazine where there was an ex excerpt in there and that's where the Bloody Sox chapter, <laughs> which is specifically <laughs> about Kurt Schilling of the Red Sox. Um, just give us a little little tease and, and folks can go to Bloomberg.com or on the Bloomberg or buy your book to read the whole story because I feel like that chapter alone could be a Netflix series or a movie because <laughs> it's just fascinating. Very successful baseball player, but it didn't turn out so well when it comes to video games, ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, man. Thank you for the kind words. And yeah, so Kurt Schilling, formerly of the Red Sox, um, these days best known as kind of a provocateur, a mm -hmm. right-wing provocateur. Um, but yeah, he very much like came from the baseball life, was very much like, I'm going to treat all my employees like all-stars. I'm going to buy them the best of the best, get them all these perks and the best health benefits, which uh, on, its, on, the, on the face of things is pretty great. But uh but he wound up running the company completely out of money. They wound up taking a giant loan that was guaranteed by the state of Rhode Island for $75 million in exchange for moving to Rhode Island and, and getting a bunch of jobs there in Providence, um, and wound up burning through that in a year. Uh, suddenly, one day, everybody gets into work. They, they think they have been made in the shade. They're here at this company where they are treated like the best of the best. They get into work one day and they are not paid. Their paychecks have not processed because it turns out the company ran completely out of money. Um, none of them got severance. None of them got those final paychecks. They were all robbed essentially of weeks of work mm. and all were stuck in Rhode Island where there are no other game companies. It's a similar story. So Jason, chapter nine, human costs, human solutions. And you, and you write, ask any veteran video game developer their least favorite thing about the industry and you'll probably get a different version of the same answer. It treats people poorly, it chews them up, and then spits them back out, leaving nothing but gristle and bones behind. So why do they do it? Do Because people go back, right? Or do they go back to the industry? I mean, they do, right? They like it. Well, it's very much a young versus industry. And um, there's, a great, there's a great quote in the book from a guy named Zach Mumbach, who spent a long time at EA. And at one point later in his career, he said, I was looking around in the office, and when I had started in 2000, I was in my 20s and everyone else was in their 20s. Now I'm looking around my 30s and everyone else is in their 20s. And I'm like, where is everyone who came up with me? And the answer is that uh, uh, the video game industry, while it's certainly fun, I mean, it's fun to work on games and it can be really interesting and challenging and creatively satisfying. Um, all these, these terrible factors, including the volatility that I cover in Press Reset, um, just lead to a whole lot of burnout. 
Um, and I'm not sure how many of those people are, are going back. I think a lot of people just feel like games does not treat them. Game, the games industry does not treat them right. Is there any model that just seems to work um, above and beyond other models? Or is this just, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, what are the companies that maybe have done it right? Yeah, well, there are a couple of things. And I explore in the chapter you mentioned, I explore some of the potential answers to these questions and solutions to these problems that I bring up here. Um, One is, uh, the big one is unionization, which has not happened in the North American video game industry at all. Um, And you look at uh, uh, the video games kind of sister industry in Hollywood, and one of the reasons that people are able to maintain careers in, in that field is because they're unionized, and so they have protections in place, and they might bounce around from gig to gig, but they know they'll get paid for every overtime hour, and they know they're going to get a certain minimum salary, and they know they're going to get benefits and, and health care. Um, so that's a big thing, and I think that could offer some protections and give workers a seat at the table in the video game industry um, to a level that they haven't seen before. The other thing, and this is it's, it's wild timing. You were talking about Zoom before and how a year ago we had no idea what it is. Um, I actually think that remote work is one of the big solutions to the to the video game industry's woes. And I say that because, like I mentioned earlier, um, the, the, the worst part about being caught in a layoff or a studio shutdown is knowing that you might have to move thousands of miles away. You might have to uproot your family. That's ultimately what drives a lot of people out of gaming. And a solution to that might be if, hey, okay, I just got laid off, but I can just log into my computer in my home office and potentially get a job anywhere without having to move. That, I think, would keep a lot of people who left the industry from burning out because they wouldn't have to worry about uh, moving to a new city every time they had to switch jobs. So it could be a game changer. Give me an idea, too. Of, you, you said it tends to be a lot of younger individuals. I remember doing a story on um, a video game company years ago out on the on the West Coast uh, in conjunction with, I think it was Stanford, that either had a program, you know, that was just specifically geared to um, teaching people to kind of how to be in the video game industry. What do they get paid typically? Yeah, I mean, it varies drastically. Like if you're on, if you're in San Francisco, if you're an engineer, you could be making over six figures, you could be making 150, something like that. But then again, you look around at Facebook and Google, and you could be making double them, double that. So it's it's uh, it's all relative, right? Um, yeah, I mean, it can really drastically differ depending on your discipline, depending on your years of experience, depending on whether you're at a big company or a smaller company. Um, but in general, the people on the bottom of the totem pole, the QA, which is quality assurance, the testers in the video game industry, they're the people who are paid to find all the bugs in games. Um, they're making around usually close to minimum wage, maybe not exactly that, but um, $20 an hour or something like $18, $20 an hour. Um, And then you can kind of get bumped up over that as you become, if you're you're a junior designer, maybe you're making, I don't know, 40, 50,000 a year, and then you kind of go up from there. It is by no means a well-paying industry. It's not uh, It's not banking or tech or anything like that, right. unless you are at the very top, unless you're in the yeah. C-suite. That's Bloomberg's Jason Schreier on his new book, Press Reset, Ruin and Recovery in the Video Game Industry. Jason, by the way, also best-selling author of his first book, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, also on the video game industry. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stanovac. Coming up in our next hour, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Joanne Lublin on the importance of women in the workforce and rock and roll legend Nancy Wilson 
fly solo for the first time. I love that interview. Also, Americans' faith in their biggest institutions, including the business community, remains fraught. Edelman founder and CEO Richard Edelman on his firm's latest trust barometer. That's coming up. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine, plus global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. And we really dig deep, Tim, into leadership and the workplace because there is a bit of a shift going on because of what happened the past 12, 13 months. Oh, and we're going to continue to see it. Mm -hmm. uh, this one we're doing with former Best Buy CEO Hubert Jolie, who says that it's time to enter the next era of capitalism. We'll also hear from award-winning journalist Joanne Lublin on her new book, Power Moms. It's all about struggles of women trying to balance management responsibilities with raising children. She talked to some really prominent female executives, many in the C-suite, for her book. Well, let's get it all started with an update on trust between Americans and companies, the government, media, and more. We are talking about the trust barometer. It's from the global communications firm Edelman, which this time around looked at business and racial justice in America. And for that, we heard from Edelman founder and CEO Richard Edelman. We began with asking how the business environment has evolved in the past year. I think on systemic racism, yeah, there's an increased uh, height of the bar. You know, a year ago, it was uh, companies just saying, or, 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 or ads for brands saying, you know, how sorry we were for the murder of George Floyd. That's performative. Now we're looking to companies to actually make a big um, commitment, a big difference. And, you know, otherwise, it's just not going to work. You know, basically, there's such an opportunity for business here to talk to its employees, all of whom are looking for serious action on more diversity on boards, more diversity in senior management, change in the supply chain so that you use black and Hispanic uh, small businesses. And also they want CEOs to speak up on voting rights bills. I mean, how is it that we pass legislation in Florida and Texas that restricts people's right to vote? I think it's a great thing that we had record voter turnout in uh, this year compared to any election since 1900. But that's not what some others see. Well, and I have to say, it was a little surprising, I think, on some level that Maybe Americans didn't think we made more progress. Dig a little bit deeper into some of the data points. Um, one that came out for me, through just 31% of people of color black, uh, we're talking about um, Latin Americans uh, here in the United States, Asian, see brands is doing enough to redress racism in their communities. I mean, that's a small percentage. Well, Carol, the big thing that changed in this last year since we last did this study is that um, corporations actually jumped about uh, 12 or 15 points brands were flatlined. Mm -hmm. So, um, again, the idea that uh, corporations have made some progress in their hiring and um, in, in, in promotion of, of people of color. Um, but a big change, the Asia, uh, the Asian Americans, um, mm -hmm. they, they have seen record uh, levels of uh, violence. And all of a sudden, um, you know, 60% of them say the business community is ignoring problems of racism against Asian Americans. So, this is a big new constituency that we have to pay attention to and do something to help. Well, and what's interesting is um, 
the constituency is doing something right and they are stopping using a lot of brands right if they don't agree with how certain companies have responded to systemic racism wasn't it amazing that 42 percent of the respondents said they've actually changed brands right if they don't stand up and speak up and i think a good example of doing it the right way is dove where you see that uh, you know for their uh, dove men's um they showed on the NCAA men's finals um, a uh, ad that showed um, African Americans who'd been basketball players who've gone on to great careers, and it says, you know, see African American men for who they are. You know, they're politicians, they're business people, they're teachers, they're not just jocks. Right. Exactly. Well, you know what's interesting is, I mean, what is it that Americans or or consumers or customers want? businesses to be doing? Is it transparency in addition to taking action, but then showing, you know, the results of such? They want to change the game. Example, KFC put a $100 million fund together to enable African-Americans and Hispanics, especially who are store managers, to be able to become franchisees. Mm -hmm. They had a very low percentage um, of diverse owners. And so they've changed it by putting up the equity money such that then that man or woman can go to the bank and borrow the money, then become a franchisee. That puts them on the um, train to success. And otherwise, these, these sort of financial hurdles make it impossible to um, create step change. So Richard, tell us there's one finding that talks about the number of Americans who believe CEOs themselves are deeply racist. What did you guys find? So look, I think that um, you know, eight in 10 expect CEOs to act that uh, they have to have a zero tolerance uh, for racism in the organization. They have to ensure the organization is racially representative of the country as a whole. They have to make sure that they're training and promoting black and Latin and API employees. Uh, the question is, you know, are CEOs unaware? Are they, or are they somehow, you know, acting in a knowledge, in, in, a, in a way in which they have knowledge of the racial problems? And, I think CEOs have to pay real attention here to how they change their organizations. Mm -hmm. This is not something that's going to pass. This is absolutely as much an urgent issue as it was a year ago. And the companies are being expected to fix problems that government normally would, right? They're stepping into the void. My employer is the most trusted organization big jump, 17 points in my employer. Meanwhile, government pretty well goes sideways. And, you know, it's 20 points higher than business and 30 points higher than, than, than government, my employer. So, you know, my company's got to act. That's what I'm expecting. Well, that's Edelman founder and CEO Richard Edelman. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, he was at the helm when Best Buy emerged as one of America's top electronics retailers. And now Hubert Jolie says it's time to rethink how we look at stakeholder capitalism and prioritize purpose over profits. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Hubert Jolie ran Best Buy as CEO for about seven years before transitioning to chairman for another year. He is on the boards of J&J, Ralph Lauren, a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School. 
he has done a lot. Yeah, he's been recognized as one of the top 100 CEOs in the world by the Harvard Business Review, one of the top 30 CEOs in the world by Barron's, and one of the top 10 CEOs in the U.S. by Glassdoor. And Tim, we caught up with him to talk about his book, It's Just Out, The Heart of Business, Leadership Principles for the Next Era of Capitalism. Safe to say, things are changing. Well, I think it needs to evolve, right? Because if, uh, <laughs> if we look at it, uh, it's clear that we're facing a multifaceted crisis, right? The health crisis, economic crisis, societal crisis, systemic racism, environment, geopolitical, you, or the all-you-can-eat-menu of, of challenges. And so what's the definition of madness, Carol, right? <laughs> it's doing the same thing and hoping for a different outcome. And I think at Best Buy, over the last uh, eight or nine years, We've demonstrated there's a very powerful way to achieve extraordinary results by putting people and purpose at the heart of business. And I think that's a philosophy that is particularly relevant today because I think we, we need to see businesses be a force for good. I think I've seen at Best Buy the power of unleashing human magic in support of that purpose and the importance of embracing all stakeholders, including community and the environment and treating profit as an outcome and not the goal, even though, you know, during my tenure or since I uh, became the CEO, our share price went from $11 to now uh, between 110 and 120 So it's a very powerful formula. It's one that's very relevant today, very needed. And I thought that in writing this book, leveraging the experience I've had, you know, I could help others on the journey. So many of us are on this journey, right? Mm -hmm. Who doesn't want to be on that journey? And who are eager to lead from a place of purpose and with humanity. And we all know it's desirable and it's hard. And I think that's with the experience I could help. Well, it's interesting. You talk about, you know, your kids, you talk about the dinner table, how you, your children talked about how excessive consumerism, I was drawn to this in the book, excessive consumerism and waste was contributing to global warming. I have to say, no one calls me on the carpet like my 18 year old about the impact (laughs) things we are having on society or the things that I've done, or she thinks I've done in in my world and, and how it's not making it a good world. But they do think differently. They look at products differently, brands differently. What can we learn from a younger generation? So, Carol, I have to disclose something to you. My daughter went to Barnard College, same <laughs> as you. Great school. I <laughs> love that. A great school, of course. And she, together with my son, are saying exactly the same thing. And it's a call for action, right? We need to create a future that does not exist yet, but that needs to be more sustainable. And my experience at Best Buy is that we can embrace all the dimensions, all of the stakeholders. So at Best Buy, for example, and we're not perfect, right? we're on this journey. We've had this recycling program, right, where you can bring all of your old electronics uh, and then we'll work with partners to recycle it. It's good for the customer. It's good for us because it creates traffic to our stores and it's good for the, for the planet. Same, we're working with vendors on the circular economy. Same at Ralph and where I'm on the board. You know, uh, the power industry is a big polluter. So right. how can we use plastic bottles. That's what Ralph has done. Plastic, recycle plastic bottles to create the, the Earth polo shirt. So you see businesses that are embracing these principles. And we have a ticking time bomb. I, I love Bill Gates' book, right? He published uh, mm-hmm. in February. We have 30 years to get to net zero. And I think that if we all mobilize and stop having this excessive focus on profits, you know, we have to start with how can we create some good things in the world uh, how can we mobilize the human resources? People are not the problem, right? Sometimes in a turnaround, you know, the advice I got, <laughs> Carol, tw- mm. you know, in 2012 when I studied is cut, cut, cut. No, right. like if people are the problem, no, people are the source, they are the solution. 
My first week on the job, I spent it listening to frontliners. And so I think we need to think really differently, and that's what I'm calling for is a refoundation of business and capitalism around these principles of purpose and people at the heart of business. Yeah, there's a section in your book about cutting jobs as the last resort. That definitely jumped out for me. Yes. Let me you ask you something, though, because, you know, how would shareholders really react, though, if you are another CEO, you know, you make profits, maybe this is the wrong word, an afterthought. I mean, it's hard as ah. a publicly held company. I understand purpose. I understand ESG. Uh, and I do think it's becoming, you know, easier to do that financially. But if you've got to make a decision between kind of doing the quote unquote right thing versus being profitable, especially if you're public, how do you do that? So uh, uh, I think it was three years ago, Carol, I actually told our shareholders, we, I was at an investor conference, they said our purpose as a company is not to make money. Mm. It's, an out, it's an imperative, it's an outcome, and you guys are a very important stakeholder, so we're going to take care of you. But the way we're going to do this is by first focusing on doing the right thing, and we're going to work hard to then create profit as an outcome. One of the things I've learned, Carol, I think it was 30 years ago when I was at McKinsey from a client of mine. Uh, he told me that 98% of the questions that I ask as either or are better answered as and. Mm. So to refuse the tyranny of or and embrace the power of and. And I think our challenge as leaders is not easy, but it's doable. That's what I've learned during my career in particular at Best Buy. Is you have to force yourself to find ways that are win-win-win. Uh, and so my view of purpose and stakeholder capitalism, this is not at the expense of shareholders. This is, in fact, how you create, you maximize, you know, you know, performance for shareholders, but not at the detriment of other stakeholders. That's what I've learned. That's Hubert Jolie, really successful career in the C-suite, of course, but now his mindset is changing as he imparts wisdom to current and future executives. Carol, I, I do wonder to what extent this type of thinking actually is going to stick moving forward, because look, when we talk earnings, we're talking about the top line and the bottom line, and we're talking about outlook. We're not talking about different differing forms of capitalism, right? And investors are reacting to those numbers. I remember on our planning call before doing this interview, and you said, you know, I wonder if, uh, you know, you put it out to shareholders and say, listen, we're going to be a better company. We're going to put purpose over profits, which means maybe we won't be as profitable, how they will feel about that. And I think a lot of investors might be like, okay, good, but I still want to see you being really profitable. Right. Look, it's, it's one thing for a private company like Patagonia to do that. It's a completely different thing for a publicly traded company. Still to come on Bloomberg Business Week, we're going to stay on this theme about how work is changing. Leadership is changing. We're going to catch up with Joanne Lublin of the Wall Street Journal. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. She's got a new book out on power moms. Gotta say, Tim, in the last year, we've seen women slide back when it comes to some of the inroads that they've made in the workplace. They are juggling a lot right now, taking care of kids, schooling kids at home, taking care of maybe elderly. It's not easy. It's not easy. We saw that data just recently in the latest mm -hmm. jobs report that all the new jobs that came back, those went to men. Yeah, exactly. Plus, how a year away from touring helped a music legend write her latest chapter. We're talking about Nancy Wilson. Yeah, she's going to join us on Bloomberg Business Week. She talks about a song that she wrote about the late Eddie Van Halen. Now, life on the road, too. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week.
As promised, we're going to continue talking about what's going on in the workplace. Things are changing. And that has certainly happened for women in the past year. They have been hurt disproportionately harder because of the pandemic. Joanne Lublin was the Wall Street Journal's career columnist for many years. I knew her when I worked at the Wall Street Journal. She's also an editor covering workplace issues from the C-suite on down, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, and she still contributes to the journal. She's the author of two books about female business executives. Her latest is Power Moms, How Executive Mothers Navigate Work and Life all about that delicate balance that women with management aspirations are forced to deal with while raising families. And it's become that much harder, as I mentioned earlier, harder during the pandemic. She explained to us how her last 12 months has been. That's where we started. Well, the the last year has been sort of anticlimactic for me because (laughs) I turned in the manuscript for this new book literally on the day before America shut down. And I had been a hermit for the prior nine months writing the book. And I thought, oh, great, now I can go out and party and socialize and take some trips. And, you know, then the world kind of turned on its head. And so I've been doing what everyone else has been doing, which is basically, you know, quarantining in place. I've taken flights twice in the last year to visit my out-of-town grown children and grandchildren. But that's about it. Yeah, interesting. And I do wonder, how are you thinking about women right now? We, we talked about some data that showed that women dropped out of the U.S. labor force in April for the first time since January. It was, I think, initially we thought, Joanne, the pandemic would be maybe helpful for women, you know, finally giving them some flexibility in how they worked and took care of their families. And yet we're finding out that that's not the case necessarily. Unfortunately, that is indeed correct. And in fact, the Wall Street Journal did an analysis of U.S. data, and they concluded that there are nearly 1.5 million fewer working mothers in the workforce than before COVID-19. And this is especially hitting women hard who have school-aged children. They're having a difficult time returning to work because, frankly, the balance of power in the home, as much as has shifted somewhat, dads have certainly picked up a bigger share of responsibility while everyone's been working from home. The burden is still squarely on mom's shoulders, particularly when it comes to school-aged children. Is that even for younger generations of couples, that it's still the case? Well, overall, that's what the studies I've seen have Mm -hmm. suggested. But certainly in the women that I interviewed for the book, I saw a marked difference between generations. For this book, I interviewed women from the baby boom generation, my generation, to look at the first wave of women who had gotten in executive-level roles in business and also had kids. And then I compared that to a similar-sized group of women who were millennials and Gen Xers, anywhere from their early 30s to their early 40s. Altogether, 86 such women plus 25 adult daughters of the boomers. And I was looking to see what had gotten better, what had stayed the same, and what had gotten worse in terms of how they navigated work and life. And to your point, yes, I did see that there were improvements among the younger generation when it comes to sharing the the duties at home. But we haven't gotten all the way to the, you know... Mm -hmm. Goal line yet. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, what's interesting is talk to me a little bit about your book. What did you set out to do? You've written books before. What was your hope to do with this? Well, my hope was to explore just that because my first book, which was called Earning It, Hard-Won Lessons from Trailblazing Women at the Top of the Business World, looked at 52 high-ranking corporate executive women, all but one of whom were baby boomers. And 80% of those women, it turned out, had children And among those who had become public company CEOs, the proportion was even higher. 
So what was their secret sauce? Well, they were trailblazers. They were the pace setters. They were the first, frankly, of their generation to get into the executive suite. And in many cases, did so while having children. And it just made me wonder, have things changed all that much for that younger wave, the women who in more recent years have become executives after having children or having children when they became executives? And what I found was that definitely things have gotten better. What's the Wall Street Journal's Joanne Lublin on her book, Power Moms? Uh, Carol, something that's happened during the pandemic is I've returned to work, Mm -hmm. but my wife has been working from home for more than the past year, and she just started going back to the office. But what I saw play out in our household over the last year has really what has played out across the country. Because she has been home, the work of of the home has disproportionately fallen on her. Yeah, and listen, I think initially we thought the pandemic was going to provide women some flexibility of maybe being at home and that it would be an advantage and help women in the workplace. But as the months played out, as the numbers showed, that wasn't the case and that women have definitely slid back because of the pandemic. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we're going to wrap up, do something a little bit lighter, with Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Nancy Wilson. Of course, one part of the great iconic rock band, We also get to hear some stories about the late, great Eddie Van Halen. You do not want to miss it. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So that's the title track from Nancy Wilson's uh, first ever solo album. It's entitled You and Me, the track and the album. Nancy, of course, along with her sister Anne, are the iconic rock band Heart in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They were touring just before the world shut down because of the pandemic. And during the past year, as the world stopped, Nancy produced this new album working at her home studio. It will be released May 7th. Let's get more, because lucky for us, joining us is singer-songwriter Nancy Wilson, also author of Heart's 2013 memoir, Kicking and Dreaming, and she joins us uh, on Zoom in Los Angeles. Nancy, uh, so nice to have you here with us. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing over there? We're doing okay. You know, we're feeling like things are starting yeah. to reopen a little bit. Well, um, I'm in uh, Northern California now. Oh, okay. We moved here right in time for the shutdown, actually. Which was a very a very lucky uh, thing for us because we got to kind of get out of this, the big city, which was maybe a little more scary to be there then. <laughs> yeah. But uh, now it's, you know, it's been going well. There seems to be some light at the end of the tunnel um, because of the vaccines, obviously, and the and following all the rules and the protocol is working. So it's really a, a beautiful um, thing to be able to say, you know go into inside in a restaurant and you know with a mask of course but right. and you know we dined for in for our anniversary the other night we went and had dinner at a, re- a favorite restaurant and that was like really like oh my god really exciting <laughs> right right like getting back to quote unquote normal um it's interesting over the past year a lot of musicians and it sounds like yourself you know, once you found your footing, have been very creative and productive over the past year. Tell us about this new album that you are putting out. Well, I th- I started um, realizing, you know, after we moved in and 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 we realized we might be here for a while, shut that shut into our home, not daring to go out and 
you know, even touch anything or just all of the sphere at the beginning of this thing. But I did have a new space to do music in. So I got my stuff, you know, out of storage. I pulled it into my space. I got my best guitars out. I got my amps out and my pedals and my microphones and my new interface. (laughs) A friend of mine knows how to run for me and uh, just real simple gear and the simplest. But, you know, the old guitars that have the good sounding dirt in them and the old (laughs) amplifiers that have the good sounding dirt in them. And um, decided to start writing again, since a lot of people have said, why aren't you going to do a solo album ever? You've never done it yet. So only a live thing once, but that wasn't a studio album. And and so I started to write. And the first thing I wrote was called um, We Meet Again, which... I thought was a lo- kind of a long view at the horizon of your life a little bit and feeling like when you have somebody that you love, you're going to be there with, you're going to be there for them and they're going to be there for you for the, for the entire ride. So um, I thought it turned out nice. And so I just kept writing and I kept writing. Um, and, and then I decided to do The Rising, a Bruce Springsteen mm-hmm. cover, right? pretty early on because I, f- I saw how the world was suffering and how that song had been written for 9-11 originally, which I thought was really appropriate for the times. Right. And it might be something ex- maybe a little aspirational for people trying to get through all of this loss and all of the fear and all of the suffering involved in this whole this whole whiplash of, of experience we had to be tossed into, you know. So I think um, it's sort of a, a, a woman's voice singing a song like that was even more kind of mothering and nurturing and mm-hmm. and aspirational. So that's kind of where it started out, and I kept I just kept on building songs. <laughs> well, tell, tell me about it, because it, it really does feel like a very – thoughtful, very deep and very reflective of what you were going through. And I think it, it will, I think for people who listen to it will feel um, some connection easily with things that they were going through. And one of the things I think about the past year, we lost some really incredible people in the music industry. And you have a tribute to Eddie Van Halen. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Well, somebody said, you've got to do an instrumental song on your album which I said, okay, you could twist my arm, you know, because I love just playing instrumental stuff because I did a lot of score scoring of movies before in the past. And it's, it's a great thing to be able to transition between songwriting and just instrumental writing. So I, somebody said, okay, I'll do, I agreed to do it. And then I said, and not only that, I'm going to dedicate it to Eddie Van Halen. Mm. And th- and then I was like, why did I say that? Like, <laughs> yeah. I I was like, oh no, now I've really painted myself into a corner, you know, because I have to now have to actually come up with it and figure out how to do it. And and you um, did. So I really avoided it. Yeah. I, I avoided it. I procrastinated as long as possible. I finally got my head around it when I thought about you know Eddie's. I listened to Eddie. I, Eddie Van, I listened to Van Halen songs, and I watched a bunch of his uh, footage, and I thought, well, here's something I know that I could try to do is it something in a very happy key. Like his music was all very major key stuff. Um, you don't hear a lot of blues licks, you know, mm-hmm. in Van Halen songs. You mm-hmm. hear positive, forthright, jubilant stuff. So 
that helped me figure out like how to find the right key, the right tuning, the right um, structure, right. where you a little bit of a classical, a little bit of rock in the middle, and then a little classical at the end, and not too long. Like in score, scoring for film, with anything without lyrics in it, you know, might tax the listener a little bit. So right, right, right. I kept it well, short and sweet, and just for Edward. Yeah, I love the title for Edward. And I mean, you guys toured together with Eddie Van Halen. I mean, do you have a story, a memory? Well, we did tour a bunch of different places and times together. Um, and we always found each other hitting it off, you know, like backstage or, you know, at the hotel passing in the hallway, you know. And they were like, hey, come down and have a drink with us in the hotel bar. And so it's like, okay, great. We'll get to know you. And so, uh, they were drinking kamikazes and whoa, what is that? So here, try one, you know? So like, whoa, how do you drink more than one of those? I'll never know. And those guys were pretty, you know, pretty heavy duty partiers and they were pretty primal with it. They would get all tangled in some kind of an argument and then they'd, they'd start hugging and going, I love you, man. And they, they were just really primal with their partying. <laughs> and, um, but they were really sweet guys, and Eddie's a sweet person who was very. We were just we were kind of fond of each other mm. because he told me I he liked my guitar, my acoustic playing, and I I couldn't believe he even said it, you know. And and then he's I said, what about you? Why don't you play more acoustic? And he said, well, I don't have an acoustic, which is amazing. I made right? a little video story <laughs> storyteller video about it uh, with the song, but. Um, and I, and I said, well, you're going to have this guitar right now because you need an acoustic. So early the next morning when it's just getting light, he calls my hotel room and plays me this gorgeous piece of instrumental acoustic music, which I, when I was trying to recall that as much as I possibly could do for the For Edward tribute song. Mm. So I, I don't know if I get close, but... I got sweet. something. Yeah, no, it's really. <laughs> At least I got it done. It's a really lovely <laughs> tribute. I have to say, um, you're incredible. I grew up with a lot of music from Sinatra and polkas to the Beatles, the Dead, Heart, you name it. Name it. So, um, you know, music really shaped me and my family, and I can kind of feel it. I feel like when you talk about it and, and how it influences you and the people you met, I have to say one of my favorite things that you and your sister did was the Kennedy Center Honors when you guys covered the Led Zeppelin Stairway to Heaven. Uh, that must have been incredible to do with Led Zeppelin looking on. Yeah, well, we couldn't, luckily, we could not see them in the balcony from the <laughs> stage because of the lights. They were tearing up. So that, you know, it was like, that was a tough room, you know, there's yes. all these dignitaries and really famous people and, and the president and the first lady were there too, and, and Led Zeppelin, no less. So, you know, we were, we were very methodical in our approach to uh, focusing in mm -hmm. on starting the song. We had to take a really, really deep breath and, uh, you know, like a yoga 
kind of a breath. That's Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Nancy Wilson of Heart talking about the late, great Eddie Van Halen. I love hearing about stories like on the road and, you know, different musicians meeting each other uh, and their interactions. What's also interesting is that over the past year, a lot of musicians, they were out touring, they had concerts planned. All of that had to stop. Their world was upended like all of us. But they use that time often to produce some new music. Yeah, it's something I've thought a lot about during the pandemic, whether it's literature, whether it's fine art, whether it's music. Are we going to see some sort of explosion in the next few years of art that was created during this time? Yeah, I wonder about like virtual concerts. Like, will they continue doing some of that stuff, which would be kind of fun? All right, that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show. It's Monday through Friday, and it starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. You can find it at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcast. That's where you can find kind of the full conversations of a lot of our interviews throughout the week. Bloomberg Business Week also available on newsstands at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. You can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take, available at Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Have a great weekend. Stay safe, everyone. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.